All right, if you have your Bible, turn me to John uh, chapter six, uh, 10, rather. We'll be covering verses 1 through 44 this morning. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, uh, like so many other freshmen, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I went off to college having zero clue as to uh, what to pursue. And I think uh, if you have kids who have gotten to that stage, or maybe you can remember yourself as you went off to college, some of you maybe knew already, I want to be an engineer, I want to be uh, a researcher, a nurse, I want to, whatever it was, you knew already. But for many of us, you know, we go, we don't really know what we want to pursue. And that was the case with me. Uh, but I did feel pressure, and I don't know where it was coming from, I felt pressure to declare something. So I decided to be uh, an English literature major. That was my initial major. The only problem was, at the time, I hated to read. I mean, I, I despised uh, reading, seriously. And so uh, about midway into Beowulf, I realized, okay, this is not, not going to work for me. And so uh, I quickly changed my major to elementary education. I thought, uh, you know, I do want to have a positive impact on people. And uh, there are a lot of girls in that program. And, um, and then I thought, you know, plus I'll have my summers off. I was really clueless. I mean, I had no idea, you know, what to expect or what I was doing. Um, but in the spring of my freshman year, as a way to kind of weed out those L-Ed majors who weren't really cut out for it, uh, we, had a, we were required to do what was called a five-week field experience. So we would, we would spend five weeks in, in a struggling school one that was struggling academically, behaviorally, and so we would actually be over a classroom, you know, under a teacher's supervision. And so these were the hardest five weeks of my life. I have so much respect uh, for teachers at this point, but I realized one day when this kid, one of my my students, this was like my fourth day in, um, he really liked me, which I was encouraged by, um, but he brought in part of his cat's tail that he had cut off, and it it was a gift to me. And so I thought, okay, this is, uh, I'd rather be reading The Grapes of Wrath right now than doing this. So I switched to a a communication major. And uh, what I did realize, though, during that period was, when during those five weeks of field experience, I realized the value and the importance of an object lesson, right? There are some things, there are some concepts that are so complicated, that are so rich, that are so beautiful, that they can only be really understood or explained by way of a demonstration. Now we see in the scriptures that God is all about object lessons, helping us understand those very complex uh, uh, concepts by way of pictures or demonstrations. Uh, you may recall maybe one of the most notable ones, or at least the most memorable. Uh, there was a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Ezekiel who ministered to uh, the people of Judah at a time when Judah rebelled horribly against God and just rejected God's commands. And so God told Ezekiel, you know, I want, you to, I want you to demonstrate something for me for the people of Judah. I want, you to, I want you to start cooking your food over human feces as a way to show the people of Judah uh, the sort of defilement that was going to come upon them because of their idolatry. Well, Ezekiel said, look, I, I mean, with all due respect, like, I can't, I can't do that. I mean, that's just too gross. There's no way that I can do that. And so the Lord said, okay, well, God relented and allowed Ezekiel to cook his food over cow dung, which is not a huge concession in my estimation, but at least it was a little progress. And so God said, okay, you can cook your food over a big cow pile, um, again, as a way to demonstrate to these people they have rebelled against me 
They have been idolatrous, and they will be defiled as a consequence. It was gross, but it worked. It worked. And so we see these sorts of demonstrations throughout the Bible. God is very concerned about how we view Him, how we regard Him. In fact, it's fair to say, as has been said before, there's nothing more important about you than what you think about God. And so God wants us to view Him in a particular way, and one of the ways that He reveals Himself to us is by way of pictures or, or demonstrations, object lessons. And here, in the passage we're in this morning, as we continue, as is our custom, to work our way through John's Gospel, God wants to give us a picture of His grace and His salvation through one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. As author and theologian D.A. Carson writes, the raising of Lazarus becomes a paradigm, an acted parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 11. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord reads this way, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you've been part of our church very long, you know that we, we kind of work our way through uh, passages in the Scripture. We usually go through a book at a time. And you've heard countless times the explanation for this. We like to keep the text in the context. We believe that much damage has been done by people who have ripped the Bible, sections of the Bible, verses of the Bible out of context. So we think you can really only understand it when you consider it in context. Well, not only um, is God sovereign over the words of the Scripture, but we believe He's actually also sovereign over the order of the stories, the way the stories appear in the Scripture. And remember last week we saw from John chapter 10, Jesus says this beautiful, incredible statement. He says, no one can snatch out of my hand the ones that God has given me. In other words, those that I love, I never abandon. Those I love, I never abandon. Well, here, in this introduction to this story, we're told that Mary and Martha's very good uh, brother, Jesus' very good friend, is actually deathly ill. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, this illness would claim his life. So he's really sick. But Mary and Martha don't ask Jesus to come and heal him. They don't even say to Jesus, we know if you say the word, he'll be healed. They don't ask Jesus to do anything at that moment. It's almost as if they understand experientially what we talked about that last week, that Jesus is not one to love and then desert the one he loves. Their confidence in Jesus is really profound, which makes Jesus' response that much more curious. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, to me, this is one of the strangest verses in the Bible. So we already know that Jesus really loves this guy, Lazarus. He's a very good friend, and he and, and Jesus cherishes Lazarus. And Lazarus' two sisters come and they tell Jesus, look, the friend, the one you love, he's, he's ill, he's about ready to die. 
And so Jesus, we're told, loved him so much that he waited two days to leave and go see him. He didn't sort of pack things up hurriedly. He get, didn't get things together, didn't throw things on a donkey. He waited two days to even make any movement toward his very sick friend. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense upon a surface reading. Why would he react that way in the middle of this crisis? Now, there is a logical reason. And the logical reason is that Jesus may have postponed his visit to Lazarus because uh, the Jews were trying to kill him in Bethany, and this was only a few weeks before. So maybe Jesus was thinking, this is not a really safe place for me to go, so maybe I'll just sort of hang out and wait for things to die down. That's a logical reason, but I don't think that's the reason. It wasn't fear that kept Jesus from going to see his dying friend. Something deeper was going on. Look at verses 7 through 10. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he who sees the light of this world, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, we get a glimpse into this, into the reason behind Jesus going. Jesus will say multiple times in this passage that everything he does here, he does so that you may believe. This is an important phrase that we see throughout John's gospel, but especially in this, in this section, so that you may believe. That's why Jesus delayed going to see Lazarus. Jesus waited until Lazarus was really, really bad off. In fact, we're going to see he had actually died. It wasn't to test the sister's faith, as some argue. It doesn't seem like a terribly loving thing to do at this sort of moment. Jesus delayed for the good of his friends and anyone else who would pay attention. As the 19th century uh, British theologian Brooke Westcott writes, because the Lord loved the family, he went at the exact moment when his visit would be the most fruitful and not just when he was invited. This is, by the way, how the Lord always works. God is infinitely wise. He, he sees what we can't see. He knows what he's doing. We, he knows the micro and the macro reasons. And he works in a way that's actually for our good and his glory. But because of our impatience, it often seems to us that God's not working fast enough. You ever had a situation in your life and you really want to see it resolved and, and you, you're really fervent in your prayer life and you've got it written down and you, you have it in, in your, your prayer app and you're going before the Lord, but it just seems like God's just not working fast enough. It just seems like he's not really doing anything. So easy to interpret what we believe to be a delay uh, from God as a lack of concern. And sometimes even as a lack of care, we think, well, I mean, God doesn't really care. Otherwise, he'd be working more swiftly. Even the psalmist, by the way, deals with this. Remember, we see the psalmist saying, why are you taking so long? I mean, do you still remember me? Have you even forgotten about me? Have you turned your face from me? Why are you delaying? Why does it seem like you've forgotten? But the reality is God always works in a way that's actually best for us. And he does so to strengthen our faith, to strengthen the faith of his own. 
when it seems like he's forgotten or maybe he's gotten busy doing something else, he's actually waiting for the perfect time to respond. He's waiting until the time that will actually be the most fruitful for us. If you're in the middle of something, and even now, maybe you're right in the, the heat of things. If you're a child of God, you can know for sure God hasn't forgotten about you. He's not off doing something else. He's not too busy to care about your needs. He has something in store for you that is for your good, and He will come to your rescue at the perfect time. Even if it doesn't make sense on your end, even if you're not getting exactly what you want, what we want to see from Him, God works in perfect timing. He can be trusted. When Mary and Martha told Jesus about their dying brother. Jesus waited two days to go see him. It was intentional. It was purposeful. It was so that those who watched, so that those who were around, would believe that Jesus was the Son of God and understand something about God's salvation. Now skip forward to verses 17 through 26. Now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now remember, Martha is a Jew. She's a first century Jewish woman, and as a God-fearing Jew, Martha believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. This was a, a well-held belief. This was a commonly held belief. In fact, it went without saying, yes, I believe that he'll, be, he'll, he'll rise again on the last day. But Jesus is not talking about the resurrection on the last day when, she, when he tells her that her brother will rise again. He's talking about the here and now. He's talking about, as we're going to see at this very moment, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This has a double meaning. The resurrection and the life are two complementary things. One Jesus statement is a reference to eternal life to all those who believe on him. They will, they will have eternal life. They will live forever. Those who have put their faith in Christ. But there's another aspect to, to this. There's, there are benefits to believing in Jesus that are not purely future, but are actually present. The one who believes in Jesus will enjoy the, this resurrection life on this side of death as well. Now here's what he's talking about. This is our first point. Jesus offers not a personal improvement plan, nor simply a distant hope, but new life right now. I had a friend and fellow elder, former church that I served as way up in this organization, Fortune 50 company or whatever, and he talked about when, a, when an employee would have a difficult stretch, they would outline for that employee a, a PIP, a personal improvement plan. I'd never heard of this before. 
Um, but this is not what Jesus does. This is not what Jesus does. He offers actually new life that begins right now. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God in the garden, all of creation was tainted. And the worst consequence was that every single person would be born, actually separated from God, estranged from God, longing for a relationship with God. After all, that's what we were created for, to be in relationship with God, but we're born estranged from Him. This is why, by the way, we spend so much of our lives trying to fill that gap, trying to fill that void. And I've been around uh, professional athletes back in the mid to late 90s, those who had millions and millions of dollars, who, who were the strongest and the most famous. And yet I noticed as I worked in that, in that industry that it doesn't matter where you are, how successful you are, how, everybody is, is, has that longing. There's a gap that, that, we're, that we're trying to fill, trying to make up for what's missing in our lives, namely a restored relationship with the God who made us. And sometimes we think, you know, if, we can just, if I can just clean up this one area of my life, if I can kind of get things moving in a better direction, make some progress, then God will approve of me and welcome me back. But we're never able to completely and fully clean up those areas. We're never able, able to make that continued progress without setback. You know, sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes, if we're honest, it's two steps forward and three steps back. We try so hard to gain victory on our own strength and we just don't see any progress well, Jesus wants us to know that He didn't come simply to help us become better people. He didn't come to help us sort of clean up our lives and get some things out of the closet and so on. He came to actually give us new life. New life. See, as far as God's concerned, there are only two types of people. It's not rich and poor. It's not black or white. It's not those who go to church and those who don't go to church. There are only two types of people. It's those who are dead in sin and those who are alive in Christ. Last week I mentioned uh, Kanye West, and uh, some of you have probably seen that you've followed a bit of what's happening with Kanye West. He's made a profession of faith, and, um, and several of you have asked me, like, what do you think? I mean, what, what, what do you think about this? And I, I really, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to believe, and I hope that uh, God's actually brought him to saving faith, that, that he's put his faith in Jesus. And I mean, think about the influence. He has like 30 million Twitter followers. So the, the sort of influence that he could have, I don't really know. I mean, only the Lord knows. But what I have seen is that Kanye is making some, some unbelievably profound statements, some insightful statements. In fact, he was interviewed by uh, a talk show host, a late night talk show host. And the host said, what are you going to say? What do you say to people who say to you, I, I just don't believe it? Like, I don't believe that you can really change in that way. I don't believe that you just, you're going one way and then the next day everything is different. Everything is now about this. And I love what Kanye said, which is not a phrase I say a lot, but uh, <laughs> I love what Kanye said. He said, would you agree that when you're asleep, it's different than when you're awake? People who don't believe are walking dead. They are asleep, and this is an awakening. The reality is, is all of that and actually much more. It's not just that Jesus wakes up those who are sleeping, although I think this is a beautiful analogy. The truth is better. Jesus makes alive those who are dead. He doesn't simply improve people. 
He doesn't take people who are a little bit better than their neighbor and make them just a little bit better. He takes people who are absolutely dead and he makes them alive. And that new life begins right away. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I am the self-improvement guru. He doesn't say, I am the secret to a better life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in that statement, not only is he declaring his deity, but he's also announcing that true life, real life, can only be found in him. Now, what if you say, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of happy with my life the way that it is. I don't really know that I want a new life. For many people, at least on the surface, and I guess we can say for most, most of us, on the surface, life seems to be going pretty well. You know, we hide what we can. We may let a few people in, but things seem to be going pretty well. But when we dig a little bit deeper and we start looking at things at the heart level, we see what that separation from God really means practically. And we notice something. We're all really desperate for peace. We're all really desperate for a sense of settledness in, in, in this life. I meet people all the time. I'm with people all the time, sometimes to pray with them, sometimes just to listen, sometimes to provide biblical counseling, sometimes to help in any way that I can. It's a privilege that I have as a pastor and something that I, I take great joy in. But one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that things are rarely the way they seem on the surface. Spontaneous laughter. You ever met somebody they can't even introduce themselves without laughing? Spontaneous laughter often hides a deep anger. A posture of extreme confidence often disguises feelings of self-loathing or inadequacy. Remember the first time I, I heard a guy, this is a guy that I deeply respected and had come to love as a friend, tell me. And I was so blown away by this. He said, when I go in stores, I won't even look in the mirror. I'm so disgusted by what I see. This was a handsome guy who was an athletic guy who everybody respected. I couldn't believe that. In fact, I just read along those lines uh, separately. I remember I read recently uh, Tim Keller saying that when he was, uh, he was a well-known pastor and has been influential in my, my life, I remember him saying when he was a teenager, he had acne so bad and he was so disgusted with the way he looked that he could never even look at any sort of reflective, any sort of reflect, reflective device, any mirror. Things are rarely the way they seem. Sometimes the people who seem the most confident are actually the ones who are most gripped by insecurity. Smiles on the outside often cover hearts that are hurting and alone. Couples that are affectionate and sometimes the most affectionate in public often fight and war when home. We had a couple in, in, in our church when I was growing up that, I mean, they, during the worship service, they just were all over each other. I mean, they were, she was always sort of rubbing him and had her, had her head kind of nestled in his neck and, 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 and he was always running his fingers th through her hair. This is during the whole thing. Now we, as a teenager, I was kind of fascinated, uh, repulsed, like a whole bunch of things were going on. I think it was, it was on one level, something I couldn't stop looking at, and another level, something that kind of grossed me out. Um, but these two really seemed to be like so in love more than any other people that I knew. And then we found out that he was being disciplined from the church 
for his violent anger and abuse at home. And I remember as a 13-year-old, I mean, I really, I couldn't even get my mind around that. Like, but they're always like love, showing love to each other and so on. And, and I'm not against PDA, uh, you know, for married couples, right? I get accused by my own children all the time, like, Dad, just stop it already. But I think my point is, we don't know what's going on. And, and the things are not always the way they appear on the surface. The reality is nobody has a perfect life. Nobody has a perfect marriage. Nobody has a perfect home. And for those who have never run to Jesus and been reconciled to God by faith, there's the added pressure of trying to manage one's own life and one's own guilt. But when God makes us alive in Christ, He gives us the righteousness of His Son. He actually speaks His forgiveness over us in Christ. We are made to be perfect because Christ's perfection is credited to us. That becomes our identity. Those who are righteous in Christ and perfectly loved by God. Which means we don't have to prove ourselves to everybody else or even God for that matter. We're already loved before we do anything. Before we get out of bed and, and accomplish anything. Before we, we click one thing off our to-do list, we're already loved by God in Christ. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove it. He already delights in us. New life in Christ is, in fact, truly living because it allows us to get off the performance treadmill and walk in fellowship with God. This is the beauty of the new life that Jesus came to give. But it seems, it seems hard to believe, doesn't it? I mean, can, can one person really provide this? This sort of forgiveness, this sort of relief, this sort of rest, this is why Jesus asked Mary, do you believe this? Not, not, that, not that he would raise, raise Lazarus from the dead. What Jesus is saying is, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that, that life and peace and joy are only found in me? She said, yes, Lord, I believe. Now look at what happens next, verses 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Three times we're told about the emotional anguish that Jesus went through, the pain, emotional pain that he suffered. He was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled, and he wept. Now, certainly, Jesus loved this family, and certainly, he was grieved over the loss of his friend, but, but we have to conclude something else was going on here. If he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, then why would he be weeping over the departure of his friend? We have to conclude something else was going on here. 
The reality is Jesus was hurting and he was angry. The Greek word used to describe his pain makes this unmistakable. Jesus weeps because, this is important, he is angry at death itself and the devastation that sin brings. When he thinks about the pain in this world brought on by sin, he literally cries. And these are real tears. This is not a metaphor This was not sort of a glamorous one tear cascading down his cheek. He wept. He was vexed. This is the kind of crying and weeping where your stomach hurts. When Jesus, when he sees, when he becomes face to face with the the destruction brought on by sin, it moves him. Several years ago, I met with a lady who informed me in that meeting that she had been deserted by her husband leaving her with two girls, two little girls to raise on her own. And that was only the beginning, she said. As she was trying to cope with being alone, she started to experience pain. She's abandoned by her husband, trying to figure out, how am I going to make ends meet with these two little girls? And she starts to experience pain. It was a kind that she'd never felt before. She thought she would kind of wait it out, but it wasn't going away. So she went to the doctor, and while she's still trying to process her husband's hateful words to her. She was diagnosed with stage three cancer. So she has all this to try to make sense of. Right about that same time, I was called at one o'clock in the morning by one of our elders who said, the police are trying to get a hold of you. And uh, I know they didn't have the right number or something. They couldn't get a hold of me. And so uh, he said, there's a lady in our church. And he said her name. She really needs help. He didn't tell me what was going on. But uh, a friend of mine who was a fellow pastor lived in the same neighborhood. So I I was finally able to get a hold of him and wake him up and said, hey, will you come with me? I don't know what's going on, but he jumped in the car with me and we, we drove about 20 minutes to this lady's house. I pulled up. It's about 1.30 in the morning. This lady is out in the front yard just screaming. I mean, literally screaming. I didn't know what was going on. Again, I hadn't been prepped. And so I got out of the car, the, my fellow pastor with me. I walked over. I didn't know what to say to her. She was screaming as loudly as she could. I just put my arm around her. I just said, and I just I stood there with her. I didn't say anything for the longest time. And then we prayed together, and then I said, what, what, what's going on? She said, my husband was, he pulled into a, a gas station, he had pumped gas, and was walking into the convenience store and was hit by a semi-truck and killed. She had three young kids. The, sin, the, the devastation caused by sin. The pain that, that exists in this world we live in. And of course, I could share dozens of stories like that. And you, have, I'm sure, have your own. This is the world we live in. This is the world tainted by sin. And Jesus is grieved by it. The death of his friend thrusts that reality in his face. One New Testament biblical scholar says, The public chaos surrounding him. The loud wailing and crying. And the scene at the cemetery together produce outrage in the Son of God as he works to reverse such damages. This world is is messed up. And as I said a minute ago, even those who seem to be doing so well are hurting. But God is neither surprised nor helpless. He's at work in ways that we don't know and cannot even comprehend. Here's our second point. In In a hurting and broken world, The resurrection of Lazarus is God's declaration, I have the power to heal and to save. Everything about this miracle 
is meant to showcase God's ability to heal and deliver in ways that no one else can. Even, even Lazarus' name, even the name in Hebrew, El Azar means God has helped me. It's so good. That, when we think about it in terms of our own application, that hurt in your life that seems like you'll never get over. Not only do you have a Savior who grieves with you over the pain you've experienced, but you have a God who has the power to heal you. And a God who will, if you trust in Him, He will heal you. He will restore you. That sin in your life that seems so overwhelming, so impossible to overcome, God has the power to deliver you from it. Now, because of the, the residue of indwelling sin, we're always going to wrestle with temptation. We're always going to struggle with sin. But sin is no longer your master if you are in Christ. The same power that God demonstrated in raising Lazarus from the dead is at work in you this very moment to bring about healing, to bring about restoration. Where sin has proven strong, God is stronger still. Where, where sin and death seem to have the last word, God showed His power in raising Lazarus from the dead. And only a short time later, God would raise Jesus from the dead, signaling the forward movement of His redemptive work. Now let's look at this last section, verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. If you have a King James Version, verse 39 says, Martha said to him, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to him, to them, unbind him and let him go. No one has ever displayed this sort of power. There's no religion that has a prophet who can do this. There's no other way of thinking. There's no other philosophical bent. There's no one who has a leader who has ever said the word and caused a dead man to leave from the tomb. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus has done this. Some commentators suggest that given the greatness of the power and authority of Jesus, had Jesus not specified Lazarus come out, that every grave in Judea would have given up their dead. Can you imagine the scene? But Jesus was, in fact, specific about what He said. Because going all the way back to verse 14, His purpose was specific. To showcase the salvation and power of God. Remember what I said at the very beginning this morning. There is a, this is a picture of God's Now, this is a real historical event. Don't misunderstand me. But this is a picture of God's salvation, an illustration of what God does in His work. He brings to life those who are dead. Here's our third point this morning, illustrated by this story. Despite our best efforts, we cannot save ourselves. New life must come from God alone. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? I would ask you the question. How much did Lazarus 
contribute to his coming out of the grave. He didn't do anything. He was dead. He didn't do anything. He wasn't in there asleep. He wasn't in there pretending to be dead. He was actually dead. So he did nothing to contribute to his own salvation, to his own new birth. As I said a minute ago, we are born dead in sin. We cannot gain spiritual life by anything we do. We have the same ability to move an inch toward God as Lazarus did to move out of the tomb. But, and I love what the late James Montgomery Boyce says about this. He put it so eloquently. But what we do not have and cannot and have not done, God has done for those who are being saved. The gospel is not the gospel unless it is good news for those who are dead. The gospel is not the gospel unless it's good news that announces what God has done to save sinners. We are broken, sinful, rebellious people. We are in desperate need of God's forgiveness. We're born actually under God's wrath. We're born under God's wrath. And we are destined for eternal condemnation. We cannot save ourselves. Now, sometimes when I say that, we're born under the wrath of God. We cannot save ourselves. We're not inherently good people at the core. People say, yeah, but, I mean, is that really true? Are we really that bad? After all, Oprah says that we're all good people. So people say, I mean, could it really be true? I mean, aren't we really all good people? And I would certainly say that because of God's common grace, we see people doing all over, doing kind and generous things, Christians and non-Christians, people helping other people out, people coming to the aid of other people. And occasionally on the news, we might even hear about somebody who puts his or her own life at risk to help someone else in need. And besides that, there there are also people who are doing much cultural good, advancing technology, discovering cures to diseases, and so on. So clearly, people can do good things. And I think it's even fair to say that because we're image bearers of God, everyone possesses a relative goodness that enables us to help others. But when we lift our eyes above and we compare our purported goodness with God's holiness and His perfect standard of righteousness that He actually requires from every person, we encounter a major, major problem. John, who wrote this same passage we're studying, said in another book that he wrote, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. God is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. Everything he does is pure and right and perfect and good. The scriptures refer to him as the Holy One. Elsewhere, this same John says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The prophet Habakkuk said this of God, You are are of pure eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on iniquity. God is holy, which means that our goodness, the very best we can do, is actually disgusting by comparison. It may be good. We may be helping people out, but when compared to the holiness of God, It is disgusting. The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary, church planter, preacher to ever live, called himself the chief of sinners, the worst sinner in the world. That's because he was looking above at God and His holiness. The very best effort that we can make to satisfy God's wrath against sin is actually, our best effort is actually an affront to a holy God. And the very best of our actions fail miserably to meet his perfect standard of righteousness, which means if we are to be saved, we need a Savior. 
If we are to be forgiven, we need a redeemer. If we are to receive new life, it must come from outside of us, not from within. It can only come from God and through the one who himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, it doesn't mean, let me say this, before, before you, you dig in your heels here, maybe a couple of you are, let me say this. It doesn't mean to say that salvation is all of God, that we have no obligation to respond. Even though God's done everything, God's the one who saves, He still calls us to receive by faith the benefits of that salvation. God has set the table. God has prepared the meal. God has provided everything for our goodness, for our nourishment, even for our salvation. But we must eat. We must eat. We must believe. We see this over and over. There's a tension there, I understand. God does it all, but we must come to the end of ourselves and receive by faith the benefits of God's salvation, which only happens when we recognize our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. We, we confess God's holiness, and we believe that what Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins was actually enough. So I conclude this morning by asking you the question that Jesus asked Mary in verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that you are actually a sinful, selfish, broken person in need of a Savior? And do you believe that what Christ did on the cross was actually enough? If you don't, what will it take for you to get there? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, which is living and active and powerful. And Father, I pray that you would pierce us this morning by it. I pray that you would help us to, to see and to know afresh just how awesome and holy you are and the full extent that you went to to save us. Lord, help us to understand the glory and the power and the beauty of your salvation and help us to understand and to recognize the beauty and the glory and the power of your Son, the only one in whom we find salvation and life and joy and forgiveness. Give us the grace to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.